on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I want to start this segment by pointing out to you the front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Top of the fold. Dateline Amherst. Council ways curbing public comments. Move being eyed as a way to streamline long meetings. It draws immediate opposition from residents. Well, okay, public comment's really important. People need to talk to each other. People need to talk to their elected officials. This discourse in public really matters. But why it should take six hours to have a meeting, a council meeting, is beyond me. So some reasonable way of talking to and with each other, I think, is paramount in Amherst and everywhere else, particularly in during these public speak times, which not, by the way, was the subject of a really important, very interesting, quite inspiring decision yesterday by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. The name of the case is Barron versus Colenda, and it is a case in which the Supreme Judicial Court decides that these civility codes for how one speaks at public speak time violate the Massachusetts Constitution. It is an inspiring decision. It is something that you really want to read for its literary merit and for its revolutionary zeal and for when you talk about for when we talk about originalism, what did the framers of the Constitution mean? Read this case, Barron versus Kalenda. It is available online. With us this morning to help us understand and to help us really come to an appreciation of language, we have Amherst Professor of Humanities, Ilan Stavans. He has a new book, the title of which is The People's Tongue. He's the editor of it. The subtitle is Americans and the English Language. Professor, thank you so much for being with us. It's such a pleasure to see you. I want to tell all of you who are listening that Elon Stavins is one of the smartest people I have ever met, one of the most accomplished. I think he speaks some five languages. And most importantly for me, he's one of the kindest human beings really oh, ever. I appreciate the wow. very much. Elon, The People's Tongue. What a fascinating book. I, I, well, I'm going to kind of give and take here, if I might. I had a, when I, my first book came out, and it's a compilation of expository writing. And I had a friend who come and say, Bill, this is about a year, a year and a half later, I finally finished your book. I said, well, when did you start? He said, a year and a half ago. And I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's only 250 pages, and they're short pieces. He said, yeah, but I had it in a particular part of my house that I visit daily, and it's the perfect length <laughs> the pieces are. And I said, you know, when I'm reading Elon Stavins' book, these are pieces that are of a certain length for the most part and are very accessible. And the title does not give away what's there. So... Tell us what the compilation is, because it's really interesting. To me, it was like having a Christmas or a Thanksgiving dinner where you actually like everyone who's there. <laughs> so tell us what's in the book. Uh, the book is an anthology that gathers together uh, the voices of around 90 to 100 different Americans, Americans uh, written large, meaning immigrants, meaning presidents, meaning translators, activists, uh, actors, comedians, who have had something to say about how the English language in the United States, American English, has changed over time. The purpose of the book is to try to figure out what is it that makes English an American language? How have we transformed it? How have we taken it away, stolen it from the British, 
refashioned it, sent it out into the world, and then conquered the world, for better or worse, with this tool that we called American English. So there are pieces by Abraham Lincoln and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, figures that have used the language for, again, better or worse, to legislate on how we should speak, but also by Lucille Ball, by Richard Pryor, by Abbott and Costello, Emily Dickinson, all sorts And Abraham of, Lincoln. It also incredibly eloquent with the Gettysburg Address. The, the purpose, again, is to see where those language come from, where the words come from, who makes those words, in what way those words define us, how is it that the English language is the statement of the American character. Well, I'm really interested in that. And one, it's not set up this way in the book, but there is a thread that runs through the book from various authors in which you have included statements by elected officials going back into the 19th century said, English should be the official language of America. On the other hand, you have in this collection a piece by you which you say, Spanglish, that's, it's a fine language. So where do you come out in terms of w- how English is defined or American English is defined and what it is? My position, Bill, is that what makes English so elastic, so beautiful, so passionate is precisely in the clash of opinions that we all have. It is the messy, loud, controversial element of trying to figure out who owns the language, who should protect it, who pushes it over the edge. That tension, democracy is always messy, but it's the mess that is so interesting. We don't want the order of tyranny. It is it is that complication that that attracts us. And English is a language that is always changing. That is the most defining, the most controlled factor. It is always changing. Unlike French, unlike Spanish, unlike other languages, it doesn't have an academy that is legislating, like the Académie Française, saying this is how you should use this word. This is the right syntax. It is up to us, to you in the radio, to me in the classroom, in the kitchen, on the playground, for us to decide how these words are shaped. Except, Ilan Stavins, professor of humanities, you have a somewhat more, how to put this, exalted position than some of the rest of us mm. because you are a consultant to the OED, right? I'm a consultant to the OED, and it, probably it's the, the activity that I like the most, trying to decide, together with many colleagues that come from different parts of the world, which words should make it to the dictionary and which words should wait a little longer, kind of simmer until they acquire the the, the presence that they should have. But keep this in mind, uh, Bill, there are different types of dictionaries. There are dictionaries that are prescriptive, that are telling people how to speak. That's how the French make their dictionaries. They tell, the dictionaries tell people what to say and what not to say. Not that people pay attention. I'd like to point out, they are the French. That's how the French are acting, (laughs) how to put this, French. Exactly. Whereas we have descriptive dictionaries. We want the dictionaries to reflect how we're speaking and not to tell us how to speak. So when I arrived to this country from Mexico as an immigrant in the mid-80s, the word bad at that time still meant bad. As opposed to good or cool or fabulous. Exactly. Thanks to Michael Jackson and many others, the word bad doesn't mean something negative. It can mean something positive. How did that happen? Well, it's a transformation into which all of us participated. 
That's the beauty of it. And the dictionary at some point had to reflect that change, had a new definition. The same word, the gay or they, those words have been in the dictionary, but have been in need of new definitions because language is never always falling asleep and not changing. It has to be in, in transformation. Take the word COVID. The word COVID is the word that entered Merriam-Webster's dictionary the fastest of any other word in history. What's the word? COVID. COVID. Yeah, like C-O-V-I-D. Sorry, my... COVID. COVID. Sorry. COVID. Sorry. <laughs> my, ac- my Mexican accent. It was... <laughs> How ironic was that? <laughs> yes. we're gonna that co- goes into the... We're going to covet COVID. Okay, got it. <laughs> and um, that word started to be used at the end of 2020 um, with, a, uh, with, you know, circulating, and it took only two weeks for the Merriam-Webster folks to say, this is an official language, we have to include it. If we don't have it, we are behind the times. And COVID is actually a complicated word because I've had it in a number of my, included in a number of my writings. And the question, one question is, do you capitalize the whole word? It's an acronym. Do you capitalize the first letter? Do you not capitalize it at all? Because nobody knows it's an acronym anymore. It's just a word. Exactly. It was an acronym, and now it has become a word. And uh, you can capitalize only the C. Sometimes people don't even capitalize the C. So it's the it's the question of what do we do with it and how we adapt it. I'd like to ask you a question. I know you were rolling your eyes at me a little bit before we walked in, but I said, Ilan Stavins, professor of humanities, Amherst College, do you really speak five languages? Because you're a translator as well as an author and an editor. I, I do. I believe, Bill, that uh, speaking more than one language allows us to live in more than one world. A language is, are the, is the prism through which we see the world. And when we speak two languages or three languages, I encourage my students, my children, uh, we really are capable of re- appreciating the fact that a word doesn't stick to an object the way monolinguals think. This is a microphone, but the word microphone is the English language. There are other ways to refer to this to this instrument that I have in front of me. Buzz. Yes, Professor, uh, this has always been such an interesting thing for me. I had the uh, privilege of uh, interviewing a psycholinguist. And psycho- psycholinguistics asks us huge questions about whether thinking begets language or language, once you know vocabulary for something, that creates the thought. Right. Where are you in that regard? I believe that we have certain structures in our minds the moment we're born that are ready for us to start filling them up with language. But the language uh, that we engage in is a social uh, dimension, a social condition. And we can have more than one language if we are raised in a multilingual environment. there are moments when a child who speaks two languages or three languages might feel lost. Do I belong to the English language? Do I belong to Spanish? Do I belong to Swahili? But eventually, that individual will find out that there are assets. These are tools to be able to work, to engage with other people. Anybody who speaks two languages is automatically a translator. Because you figure out that what you're saying could be said in a different way and that that alternative way of saying 
will include some metaphors or some distinctions that will push you to see things slightly in a different way. You know, there's there's always big discussions that there are multiple ways of a saying snow or saying cold in more cold weather or in a hot weather. And that has to do with the fact that more words are needed in that environment to describe that situation that affects everybody. And that's beautiful. Having more words is beautiful. Did you learn these languages, the five that you speak, as a child, or did you learn some later in life? I learned three languages when I was growing up, Bill, and I can tell you from my own... English, Spanish... And Yiddish. And I can tell you from my own experience that once you learn a second language and you know that the world can be dressed up in two different ways, a third language and a fourth language, they come easier because you already know that there are different patterns for things and structures. And of course, learning two languages is easier also when you're a child. The, the, the more you grow up, the, the more time settles in, it is harder to learn languages. So Childhood is the best moment to expose um, ourselves to different tongues and to make so to make it in an effortless way. It's not as if you have to be teaching a child two languages because that's going to be good. It's just that the two languages are part of the family and then you switch from one to another. One of the aspects that I, for me was very important was um, to distinguish when I was growing up what was said in Yiddish and what was said in Spanish. There were the house of my grandparents was a Yiddish language house. I would enter there and my mind would switch into Yiddish. And then I go, would go out on the street and be talking about soccer or whatever it was. And then it was the Spanish language. And I don't remember mixing languages, mixing Yiddish with Spanish. I, I believe, I might be imagining this, but I believe that those realms were well differentiated one with the other. But in the modern world, and in the United States in particular, mixing languages is something that we do all the time. There wasn't Yiddish only among Jews that were arriving from Eastern Europe. There was Yinglish, the mix of Yiddish and English that the second generation was talking, just the way that Spanglish is the way of communicating of Latinos today, 65 million. We do not speak a pure Spanish language. We speak a, let's put it in quotes, contaminated language here that switches back and forth between codes, that invents new languages. I think that's beautiful. Beauty, maybe. I have this question for you. English is a really difficult language, as various parts of uh, your book point out in one way or another. It's not phonetic. It doesn't make any sense. It's a headache. <laughs> it's a head and yet it's the universe, well, universal, I'm not so sure, but it is the most widely spoke, spoken language across continents. It is, absolutely. It is not the most popular first language that is right. native language. They, there are more speakers of Mandarin and Cantonese than English language speakers, but there are more speakers of English because we have more second language speakers, that is people that come from other languages and speak it. And you, you said something very important important 
among the many important things that you have said, Bill. Okay, I only <laughs> I only paid you a hundred bucks for that. You know, I only get two comments. So thank and you. that is that English, for better or worse, again has become a universal language. That is the the default language in which people engage in business, in technology, in science. Although when NASA years ago sent a uh, spacecraft out into the universe, kind of randomly, and it had a lot of pictures and photographs and depictions of life on Earth. It had English, but it also had other more, well, I don't know if universal is quite the right word here, but ways of trying to describe or show what life on Earth is. Yeah, absolutely, because uh, we need to realize that even English in its universality is limited. And we also have to recognize, and that was already a statement of it, that we are moving from a language that is a word-driven to more graphic ways of connecting with each other. When you go to an airport right now, you don't need to know the word men or women. You will see an icon for a man, an icon for a woman in the bathrooms, and you will be able to identify the place. That is going beyond words in, into images, because images are much more universal and don't need translations. We are speaking with Amherst College professor of humanities, Ilan Stavans. His new book, he is the editor of The People's Tongue, Americans in the English Language. On the other side, we are going to hear him read a couple of these pieces, which are fascinating and fabulous, right after this. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The months following a child's birth can be of the most trying times of a woman's life. With the round-the-clock demands of a newborn, who is the time or energy for housework? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love to put my team of eco-friendly cleaners to work for you. With our Green Care Postpartum Support Program, we offer discounted green cleaning services on a sliding scale to postpartum families for the duration of the fourth trimester, or the first three months after your baby is born. To find out more about the services we provide, check us out online at greenloveclean.com. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The Hug Plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Frances Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at hugyourmoney.com. 
On Tuesday, March 21st, Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts invites you to attend our annual Celebrity Bartender event from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Student Prince. This year's celebrity lineup includes Al Casper, Savage Arms, Amanda Garcia, Elms College, Brian Hauser, Police Motor Group, Matt McGuire, TD Bank, Carla Casenzi, Tommy Carr Auto Group, Mayor Dominic Sarno, and Rock 102's own Steve Nagel. All are welcome as we raise support for JA's work inspiring youth to succeed in the Pioneer Valley since 1919. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Amherst College Professor of Humanities, Ilan Stavans, who is the editor of just a fascinating new book, The People's Tongue, Americans and the English Language. Professor, would you care to read? Some of the pieces are longer. Some of them in the anthology are shorter. Maybe you could pick a short piece or two to share with our listeners? With enormous pleasure. Um, again, the, the book is made of a, of a variety, a smorgasbord of uh, different texts. I want to read one of my neighbor, Emily Dickinson. Uh, we didn't get to know each other, but we at least coincide geographically in the same place. This is a beautiful poem that she wrote. A word is dead when it is said, some say. I say it is just, it just begins to live that day. I love this poem because every word that Emily Dickinson uttered, and she was strategic in placing them on a poem, felt as if she was inventing it anew, if she was giving birth to it. And her poems are short. They are, they are full of of dashes, of periods, of spaces. And she made up, she invented that syntax. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what a, a real poet does. Not only the words, but the spaces in between, the silences. She is such a poet. So, so magnificent. And so ahead of her time and ahead of our time, I would say. And I want to read another one. This is a poem by a teacher and a playwright, Maria Eugenia Morales. It is in Spanglish. It is this um, mixed language that we were talking about. And it's, you'll see it's called Twas the Night. It's a take of, of a very famous um, a song. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the casa, not a creature was stirring. Caramba, que pasa? Los niños were sleeping away in their camas, some in vestidos and some in pajamas. <laughs> While Mama worked in her little cocina, los primos were down at the corner cantina. The stockings were hanging with much cuidado in hopes that Abuelo would feel obligado to bring all the children, both buenos and malos, a nice bunch of dulces and other regalos. En <laughs> 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 otras palabras. En <laughs> <In> otras palabras. <laughs> you are a consultant to the Oxford English Dictionary. And you, therefore, make judgments about what words are appropriately in included in a dictionary. I'm wondering what the criteria are that you use. Well, I use the criteria of the OED. In other words, I am, it's not my dictionary. I contribute to the large conversation that many lexicographers participate in. The, the main parameter of a dictionary, certainly the dictionary, the OED being the, the most monumental that we've ever created in the English language, is that a word, in order to be accepted, has to be identified in three different ecosystems that are unrelated to one another. 
So somebody uses that word in Montana, in uh, London, and in Australia. And the meaning of that word is the same. So the word is not invented by a small group, but has already become uh, authentic and widespread. And then the challenge comes, Bill, on how to define that word, because somebody in Montana might, might be using it in, with a particular twist that is different from the folks in England or the folks in Australia. And uh, I would tell you that the hardest part of uh, uh, engaging in lexicography with dictionaries is not choosing the words, but figuring out how to be concise, sharp, direct, in the definitions, because you can never use the word you're defining in the definition. You cannot say blue is bluish. Um, and you can never use a word in the definition that is more difficult than the word that you're defining. It has to be for the common people, for the general audience. And so I think there's great poetry in how you're going to define the word air or yellow or love. Those are words that we are always using. Some of them are incredibly difficult to define. How do you define the word love? Love from whose perspective? I don't know, an extreme form of like. I don't know. <laughs> how, how do you? Well, like is a very popular <laughs> word these days, as you know. <laughs> well, I know, Buzz, you have a question. I would like to proffer this one to Professor Ilan Stavans. This is an anthology. It is filled with some of the most brilliant writing in the history of the English language. Yes. And I'd like to know, how did you go about making the selections you did? I wanted, I, I came to English, Bill, uh, after my first two languages, Spanish and, and Yiddish. And I feel finally comfortable in the language. I wanted to create a, a love letter to this language and to highlight the most significant pieces that have defined the language as is today. I, I will answer your question by telling you that any anthology, that is a compilation of texts, creates its, its double, its other work, its kind of shadow. It is, one is the book with everything that you managed to put in, and one is the, word, the book with everything that was left out. It's another book, and you hope that the one with everything that went in is better than the one with everything that was left out. Do you have a, I don't want to say it's an epiphany, but do you have a moment where you wake up sort of in the middle of the night and say, I can't believe I didn't include Absolutely. this? Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, yes, and I say, that would have been perfect for this. But then there's the issue of, of, uh, of permissions. You have your ideal team and then you send out the permissions and somebody comes back and says, yes, but you have to pay me $25,000. And you realize, <laughs> all right, really? Is language <laughs> worth that much? <laughs> and and you, have, you have in this book a place where, uh, was it Dr. Seuss's? Dr. Seuss, yeah. um, who you asked for permission and they said no. They said no. I mean, Dr. Seuss for me, I came late to English. Dr. Seuss for me is one of the most inventive poets of the English language. Astonishing. And I went to this source and they said, yes, but you can only use four lines. Four lines of green eggs and ham or four, four lines of the Lorax. I, there are only four lines in the book because I could not <laughs> afford not to have him in, but I wish I could have the whole thing. I just really wanted to, in terms of the common usage thing that you do, 
for the Oxford English Dictionary. There's two different types that I'm thinking. One is like a metaphor, the word crib. Yeah. I'm going to invite you to my home. I'm going to invite you to my crib. Yeah. That's sort of just a metaphor for the notion of home. But if I call Bill my homie, yeah. that's a whole different thing, right? Yeah. And that's a whole new word, even though it's got home in it, right? Yeah. Can you distinguish those two Absolutely. and how you regard them? I, the word crib is a word that we've been using for a long time. I don't have the, the, the dictionary here in front of me, but it's a word that probably dates back to the 16th century. Shakespeare uses that word, Milton, um, and so on, as, as, the, as the writers succeed. But only recently, and mainly from hip-hop and rap, has the word crib been used as a metaphor for home. In fact, I remember perfectly where when my son, who's a DJ, started to say, oh, come, I'll meet you at my crib. And I thought, oh, my God, he's 27. <laughs> <laughs> but the word homie is also coming from hip-hop and in, in, the, in the rap. And I, th- I think, Buzz, that it has much to do with the, the effort of the population that creates hip-hop and rap to feel at home in the English language and to feel at home in the United States as a whole. And just one more thought. Every single word, if you come to think of it, is a metaphor. That is a substitute for something else. The microphone is one thing and the word microphone is something different. We are using the word microphone to connect with this object. But we can use those levels of metaphor more and then we can a, extract a word from its environment. So does the word homie make it to the dictionary? The word homie is in the dictionary, absolutely. Yeah. And it should be. If it's a word that is being used and abused so much, it definitely should be there. Okay, my homie Bill, your turn. <laughs> we have been speaking with Elon Stavins, Professor Elon Stavins, Professor of Humanities at Amherst College. The new book is The People's Tongue, Americans and the English Language. You should read it. You should buy it. It's available at your local independent bookstore. Professor Elon Stavins, thank you for your time. Thank you for your book. Thanks for all you bring to this world. You are a very special person and an amazing editor and author. Thanks so very thank much. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias. And a mensch. And a mensch. Thank you. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A South Hadley man will be charged for the deaths of two people that were struck and killed in East Hampton last August. 64 year old Stuart Larkin of South Hadley hit 81 year old Edward Hanlon Jr. and 60 year old Alona Murray as they were attempting to cross the street on Route 10 near the Burger King in East Hampton. An investigation into the accident concluded Larkin should have seen the two people in time to avoid hitting them. Larkin will be charged with two counts of negligent motor vehicle homicide and one count of speeding. He's expected to be arraigned on April 3rd. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia says he takes full responsibility for the problems within the city's police department, despite it being a decades-long problem. At Monday night's meeting of the city's Public Safety Commission, auditors presented their findings and offered solutions to many problems plaguing the city's police, namely the need for more training, better record-keeping, and more financial oversight. 
And although I've been in office for one year and six months tackling these issues that built up for decades, I want folks to know that I take full responsibility as the commander-in-chief of this city and will do anything it takes within my legal power to keep making the hard decisions on behalf of the public so that we put our city on a better course. 66% of officers surveyed indicated they felt they were undertrained for their current role. Cooley Dickinson Hospital is the recipient of a $250,000 donation from Smith College. The funds will be used to expand and renovate the emergency department. Renovations of the Cooley Dickinson Emergency Room are expected to begin this spring. Sunshine this morning, clouds this afternoon, and breezy all day. Perhaps a wind gust or two over 30 miles per hour, a high of 42 to 46. Variable clouds and breezy tonight, overnight low 26 to 32. Mostly cloudy, flurry or a sprinkle on Thursday with a high of 42 to 46. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian. Ryan Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El líder republicano del Senado, Mitch McConnell, se unió a un coro de ataques generalizados contra el presentador de Fox News, Tucker Carlson, por su descripción del ataque del 6 de enero al Capitolio desde que accedió a más de 40.000 horas de imágenes de seguridad. Carlson y su equipo tuvieron acceso exclusivo a la cinta de seguridad que rodeaba el ataque gracias al presidente de la Cámara de Representantes, Kevin McCarthy, lo que generó preocupaciones de que el anfitrión usaría las cintas para difundir una nueva ola de desinformación. McConnell dijo que que se alineó con los comentarios emitidos el martes por la mañana por el jefe de policía del Capitolio de los Estados Unidos, Tom Manger, a sus bases criticando las conclusiones ofensivas y engañosas de Carson sobre el asedio. McConnell dijo que los comentarios de Manger son la opinión correcta, pero el líder republicano del Senado no llegó a criticar al presidente de la Cámara cuando se le preguntó si McCarthy cometió un error al darle acceso a Carson a las imágenes de seguridad. McConnell respondió diciendo, mi preocupación es cómo se representó, que es un tema diferente. En otras informaciones, la Casa Blanca dijo que respaldó la legislación presentada el martes por una docena de senadores para otorgar a la administración nuevos poderes para prohibir la aplicación de video TikTok de propiedad china si representan amenazas para la seguridad nacional. El respaldo impulsa los esfuerzos de varios legisladores para prohibir la popular aplicación, la cual es utilizada por más de 100 millones de estadounidenses. El proyecto de ley le da al Departamento de Comercio la capacidad de imponer restricciones que incluyen la prohibición de TikTok y otras tecnologías que presentan riesgos para la seguridad nacional, dijo el senador demócrata Mark Warner, quien preside el Comité de Inteligencia. El presidente ejecutivo de TikTok, Zhou Chu, comparecerá ante el Congreso el 23 de marzo. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Talk the Talk. And this is our segment, Cool Films, with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hutt, who has been previewing for us and making recommendations with regard to films that are nominated for Oscars. Larry Hutt, what do you have for us this morning? Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Buzz. Dan. Well, something different today, because usually I talk about documentaries. Uh, but we have been through the long season of documentaries, and I'm, I'm just tired of it. <laughs> I don't <laughs> yeah, want to talk about documentaries I mean, one anymore. career in documentaries is enough. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's true. 44 years doing documentaries. I'm done. <laughs> I want to talk about the 10 
nominees for Best Picture. Best Best Picture. Best Picture. This is a, the feature award. This is the primary purpose of the American uh, Motion Picture Academy Association, whatever they call it, AMPIS, American uh, forget it. I can't remember what it's Motion Picture for. Association. <laughs> Academy uh, of Motion Picture. You remember. <laughs> Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Thank okay? you. Right. Ampis. Wonderful word. And they, you know, they were formed in the 1920s as a trade group for the studios. And then they started, they got in a huge fight with the Actors Union. And they decided they couldn't do this anymore. They just didn't want to fight about it. So they said, we're going to only do one thing. We're just going to have an award ceremony. And that's basically what they live for. So it all builds up to the Best Picture Award. When you watch the Academy Awards, three, four, seven hours, it feels <laughs> it a does lot go longer. On forever. Right? <laughs> it's all building up to that big award at the end, the Best Picture. And they expanded it from five. It was at five nominees from 1920s up until a year or two ago. Now it's 10 nominees. Why is that? Because they're trying to get people into the theaters, right? They say, oh, well, if we have 10 films instead of five, there's twice... People have twice the chances of getting into the theaters and spending money. And it's endorsing. Here are 10 great films, and everyone has the question, how can you choose one? Thank you for using the word endorsement. The perfect word for Hollywood, really. Ad- advertising and you know how product placement, endorsements, it's the whole thing. So they are endorsing these films as the best. So I was looking at the list, and I watched all the films. That's one of the, part of the fun of being a member of the Academy is you, you have access to everything that's nominated, best costume, you know, best, best tier, best use of makeup, you know, any, anything in the film. So I watched. And you I get a vote. I get, I, get, I get to vote. I'm very special. Yes, I get to vote. There's only like three people in the whole valley who get to vote on this, and we get together and talk about it every night. so i did a little analysis of the top 10 films top 10s as considered by the members of the academy and i was looking at them to see if i could find any connection american motion picture arts and sciences motion picture arts and sciences american academy academy motion picture arts and sciences okay no, it's not even the American. It's the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Let's waste another few minutes on this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. What's, so what are here, your nominees? I'm just, I'm just going to read you the list really quickly okay, so great. people aren't saying, what the hell is he talking about? Okay. So, in alphabetical order, All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Insurin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, also known as E-E-A-A-O, <laughs> The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun, Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. So I was thinking, what, what connects all of these? What's the one thing that they have in common? Well, I couldn't find completely all in common, but I found that eight of ten of them are quite violent. And that made me think, okay, this is really interesting. Considering what's going on, particularly in American society, seeing as that most of these are American films, and we've chosen films, we, the members of the Academy, eight out of ten of them are extremely violent. And if you could say that the most, the most violent of them all is All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay, no surprise there. It's a war movie about one of the most violent wars in the history of humankind. Okay. But it is particularly violent. It, it is as if the opening to Saving Private Ryan ran for two and a half hours without a break. D-Day... Killing, murder, hand-to-hand combat for two and a half hours. That's what All Quiet on the Western Front is. That beginning of 
that beginning is uh, Saving Private Ryan, one of the most intense, I don't, know, I don't know how long it goes on for, but one of the most well, intense. Well, imagine that for two and a half hours. I can't imagine. With, with the sad, sad feeling that you know where this is going because they tell you at the beginning it's three days before Armistice Day, right? So all that killing is going on, and you know it's going, as a viewer, you know it's, it's going to end, and so do the soldiers, by the way. So that's what All Quiet on the Western Front is about. Apparently, I think somebody reminded me the last line of the book is after that 11th hour, the 11th minute, it's all quiet on the Western Front. And when you've watched this movie for two and a half hours, all that killing that goes on, and then the silence at the end, that's what you're getting, right? That sense of, my God, what did I, what did I just see? What, and, and it was never supposed to happen again. But I digress. The war was, to end all wars. Right. So I prepared a couple of clips this morning, if we have time. So the next film that it doesn't, on a surface, sound like it's going to be violent, The Banshees of Inchrin, although I guess the word banshees makes you think of wild screaming. Let's hear a clip from this film, this, this Irish film about a quiet little island where nothing happens. Colin Sonny Larry. Didn't June? He used to be the best of friends. We're still the best of friends. No, you're not. Who says we're not? Sit somewhere else. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. Well, you didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more. You didn't like me yesterday. Why does he not want to be friends with you no more? Why is he 12? What the hell's going on with you, me feckin' brother? He's dull, Siobhan. But he's always been done. The other night, two hours, you spent talking to me about the things you found in your little donkey shite that day. Well, it wasn't me little donkey shite. It was me pony shite, which shows how much you were listening. If you don't stop talking to me... Colin! And if you don't stop bothering me, I have a set of shears at home. And each time you bother me from this day on, I'll take those shears and I'll take one of my fingers off with them and I'll give that finger to you until I have no fingers left. Does this... I have no fingers left. So it's in the, even in the trailer, you get the sense that this is a comedy, right? And then a minute into it, I'm going to cut off all my fingers until I have no fingers left. As a viewer, you think this is an idle threat. Have you seen this film? Yes. No. Yes, <laughs> yes, and a, yes and a no. Okay. And you're right. I was totally surprised with and, the violence. And some people can't get through the film. Right. Some people get up and walk out of the theater or walk out of the, uh, of the den because that personal violence, what somebody's doing it to themselves, is so intense. It's a black comedy, right? Because it's set up to make you laugh and be horrified at the same time. So this film is nominated. Title again? It's called The Banshees of Insurin. It takes place on a little quiet island off the coast of Ireland where nothing ever happens. I actually right? found it to be a beautiful film. It's Larry. a beautiful film, and the acting is great, and it's, it's one of those odd short stories, and it's really getting at the sense of what happens in these small communities. It's kind of like a patent place, right? Everything looks good on the surface, and underneath it's really dark and ugly. Right? So, extremely violent film, as a comedy, nominated for Best Picture. Right? Let's go on to The Triangle of Sadness. Right, here's a clip from The Triangle of Sadness. This is a film that takes place, for the most part, on a luxury liner, luxury cruise ship. All right, let's hear a clip. 
Runway casting for a grumpy brand or a smiley brand? So it's a grumpy brand, yeah. Congratulations! Show me that Balenciaga look. Oh, Suddenly I'm dressed in something way less expensive. It's H&M, yay! Balenciaga and H&M, Balenciaga and H&M. It looks paid for the tickets. Not bad, huh? <laughs> so what do you do? I sell shit. Success of a luxury cruise mainly depends on you. I don't want to hear anybody saying no. It's always yes, sir, yes, ma'am. I command you, enjoy the moment. No, no, no. <laughs> what? You say no to me? No, no. Oh, so it's yes. It, yeah, no. Yes. Go in. Yes. <laughs> Do you think it's possible to wash them? I don't think that's possible, ma'am, because this is a motorized vessel. Yeah. So we don't have any sails. Don't have any sails. That was Woody Harrelson. Okay, this is a very, very strange film. Very, very dark. It is about two influencers, modern influencers, and the triangle of sadness is referring to... Um, your face, above your nose and between your eyebrows, this area where if you just look at it, you can see, even if somebody's wearing a mask, whether they're happy or sad, the triangle of sadness. <laughs> and here it is about these young people on this boat who have won a prize because they're influencers to be on a cruise with some of the wealthiest people in the world. And then after two hours of this, you're watching the satire they are attacked by pirates, the boat explodes, and they end up on a deserted island. And the role reversal happens. The people who are most competent are the servants, and the people who are fools are the wealthy people. It is an homage to a film you might remember with one of the greatest titles ever. I had to look it up because I couldn't remember the whole title. Swept away by an unusual destiny in the blue sea of August. It's the same film updated, but there is a great deal of violence mixed in with the comedy. Think about that when we take a break. We'll be right back. More cool films with Larry Hott right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. 
Meet Sister Holiday, a chain-smoking, heavily tattooed queer nun turned amateur sleuth in Scorched Grace, a new mystery novel by local author Margot Duahi. Pick up Scorched Grace at Broadside Bookshop in downtown Northampton. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Browse Broadside to your heart's content. Order virtually any book on the Broadside website, then pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenville Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Mike Buckmaster, Senior Vice President, Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Are you starting a business or maybe you're looking for financing to help your current business grow? Our experienced local commercial team can help you out. We'll walk you through the process and let you know what information and forms are needed so you're fully prepared. As a community bank, all our lending decisions are made locally and our commercial lenders are well equipped to ask the right questions to make your loan application move fast and easy. Ready to chat? Give us a call or stop by and see us. We'll meet you at any of our Hampshire and Franklin County locations. Or if you prefer, we're also happy to meet you at your business. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. We are talking about the Oscars, the nominees for the best picture of the year. Larry, what go through quickly, if you would, for us, please. What are the nominees for Best Picture this Okay, year? here are the 10 nominees for Best Picture, in alphabetical order. All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar, The Way of Water, The Banshees of Incheron, Elvis, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, and Women Talking. And what I have been talking about is that almost all of these, 8 out of 10, are very violent films, and the two that aren't violent imply it or have sections where you know the violence has happened or could happen. So what is going on with these films? And by those Why two are they pictures, nominated? should we name them? The ones, all right, so Elvis and Tar are not really about violence, although there are scenes in there that imply there has violence happened or could happen, or, or in, in the case of Tar, there's been sexual abuse uh, Elvis, it's it's sort of implied that there's some kind of tension back in the in background in his family. But this is violence, obviously sells, right? And it's very dramatic. Um, I was thinking about this about the other films. You know, uh, the most violent of all these is All Quiet on the Western Front, and it's a war movie, so that makes sense. Recently, I saw Argentina, 1985, which is nominated for Best Picture, Best Foreign Picture. It is the most violent film I have ever seen without a single scene of violence because it is a courtroom drama that describes what the generals in Argentina did and the witness testimony, which is taken from the transcripts of the trial, is so horrifying it's almost hard to listen to. 
And then I had to compare it to what I think is the least violent film I have ever seen, and one of the best this year, didn't get a lot of notice, which is Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, <laughs> which is up for best costume. It is a sweet film where everybody is really nice and nothing violent is happens or is... Oh, in, good. In, Give us the name is, of that, the title of that it's film. It's Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. It's a date night film if you want to have a wonderful, happy time and laugh all the way through as an antidote to all the violence in these other films. And I want to end by talking about Women Talking by Sarah Polly. Uh, it, also, it is nominated also for a Best Adapted Screenplay. It is based on a uh, incident in a Bolivia in a Mennonite village uh, community where the women rebel because they have been so sexually abused by the men. Sarah Polly updates it to 2010 in Canada. Can we just hear 10, 20 seconds of this film? The absence of love, the end of love, the need for love result in so much violence. It was all waiting to happen before it happened. You could look back and follow the breadcrumbs along the path that led to violence. When we looked back, it had been everywhere. Just about every word in the trailer is violence. Violence, violence, violence. Yet most of the film is women talking about the violence and what to do about it, and there are flashbacks that show it. This is probably the most intense of the films without really literal depictions of violence, more hinted at. But so I'm leaving you with the, with the thought, why does violence sell so well? And what has the Academy said by nominating these 10 films for Best Picture? Which are, in my judgment, really, actually excellent films. They're all really compelling, which maybe says something about all of us and me, but we'll continue this conversation next time on Cool Films with Larry Hott. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Paul Gauguin Cruises. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. It's been debated since the pandemic began. Where did COVID-19 come from? Lawmakers are holding a hearing on Capitol Hill right now. The Atlantic Council senior fellow James Metzl was blunt, blaming China for doing everything it can to block investigations into where the COVID-19 pandemic started. But Metzl says... There can be no doubt that a research-related origin remains a very serious possibility, if not a distinct probability. 
Metzl stresses that the world is entering globalization where risks are increasing, including the possibility of pandemics far worse than COVID-19. Allison Keyes, CBS News, Washington. An update on the case of the four Americans violently kidnapped in northern Mexico. Two were killed. CBS's Omar Villafranca is in Brownsville, Texas. Mexican officials are still investigating while U.S. officials are working to get the bodies back of the other two victims on American soil, but we don't have a timetable for that just yet. They could go from snowbound to waterlogged in parts of California. Meteorologist Craig Allen with our affiliate WCBS. Now we have that atmospheric river set up once again, which takes deep Pacific moisture all the way down from around the Hawaiian Island chain, takes it right on up into the west coast of the United States. There are fears of severe flooding. Newly released court documents in Dominion's lawsuit against Fox show former President Trump spread lies about the 2020 election on purpose. And Fox host Tucker Carlson, who received hours of video from the January 6th attack, continued to spread the disinformation. Correspondent Scott McFarlane. CBS News caught up with Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who said he has no regrets about sharing video with Carlson, but is yet to release it to other news organizations. Look, I, I didn't see what was aired. What I trans, uh, want to do exactly is give the transparency to everybody and everybody can make up their own. This is International Women's Day. The U.N. has named Taliban-ruled Afghanistan the worst country for women and girls. Correspondent Vicki Barker. Since their 2021 takeover, the Taliban have banned girls' education beyond sixth grade, banned women from most jobs, forbade them to visit parks and gyms, and ordered them to cover themselves from head to toe. The U.N. condemning policies that leave most women and girls prisoners in their own homes. Prince Harry's headed to court in London. A high court has ruled his lawsuit against the publisher of the Daily Mail will go to trial in May. The Duke of Sussex alleges the tabloid Mirror Group hacked his phone. Today's announcement raises the prospect Harry could enter the witness box around the time his father, King Charles, is coronated. This is CBS News. CBS News is brought to you by Paul Gauguin Cruises. Artfully authentic, all-inclusive year-round cruising to Tahiti and the South Pacific. Visit pgcruises.com today. I'm Martin Hoke, the inventor of Navage Nasal Care, and I love Navage. I've told you about how your nose is the body's air filter, that Navage's powered suction will help flush out allergens, viruses, mucus, and germs, and that Navage will help you breathe better. But what do other people say about Navage? Like Josh, quote, After walking around my whole life being a mouth breather, I was excited to try Navage. I read the directions carefully, pressed the button, and oh my gosh, what a sensation. So much mucus, so much crud, but oh sweet, merciful air, I can finally breathe you through my nose. Never have I ever taken such an amazing breath in my life. This is a life changer, unquote. He's one of over 100,000 online reviews praising Navage, the all-natural solution trusted by over 3 million people to help you breathe better, sleep deeper, snore less, and stay healthier without drugs. Navage is available at Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, Target, Rite Aid, and online. Navage. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A South Hadley man will be charged for the deaths of two people that were struck and killed in East Hampton last August. 64-year-old Stuart Larkin of South Hadley hit 81-year-old Edward Hanlon Jr. and 60-year-old Alona Murray as they were attempting to cross the street on Route 10 near the Burger King in East Hampton. An investigation into the accident concluded Larkin should have seen the two people in time to avoid hitting them. Larkin will be charged with two counts of negligent motor vehicle homicide and one count of speeding. He's expected to be arraigned on April 3rd. 
Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia says he takes full responsibility for the problems within the city's police department, despite it being a decades-long problem. At Monday night's meeting of the city's Public Safety Commission, auditors presented their findings and offered solutions to many problems plaguing the city's police, namely the need for more training, better record-keeping, and more financial oversight. And although I've been in office for one year and six months tackling these issues that built up for decades, I want folks to know that I take full responsibility as the commander-in-chief of the city and will do anything it takes within my legal power to keep making the hard decisions on behalf of the public so that we put our city on a better course. 66% of officers surveyed indicated they felt they were under-trained for their current role. Cooley Dickinson Hospital is the recipient of a $250,000 donation from Smith College. The funds will be used to expand and renovate the emergency department. Renovations of the Cooley Dickinson Emergency Room are expected to begin this spring. Sunshine this morning, clouds this afternoon, and breezy all day. Perhaps a wind gust or two over 30 miles per hour, a high of 42 to 46. Variable clouds and breezy tonight, overnight low 26 to 32. Mostly cloudy, flurry or a sprinkle on Thursday with a high of 42 to 46. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian. Ryan Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And this is Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And welcome to the show. You know, um, today's International Women's Day. Um, I think they should rename it. Maybe it should be Intergalactic Women's Day today because with us is, uh, I just want to read this. You are an observational extragalactic astronomer who studies galaxy formation and evolution over the past billions of years. I came to know about you because NASA issued a press release about a week and a half ago, I think, and it said it was about uh, NASA, that is the... uh, National Aeronautics Space Administration's James Webb Space Telescope uncovers new details in Pandora's Cluster. Pandora's Cluster is a galaxy, and together with two other galaxies, has formed this mega cluster. And you, uh, Kate, you, Kate Whitaker, professor at University of Massachusetts and an astronomer, and I think an astrophysicist, you're a member of a team that made a discovery that now is breaking barriers of knowledge, right? Yeah, it is awesome to be here. Uh, Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So (laughs) tell us about what your involvement is with the James Webb uh, Space Telescope and what you've uncovered. And how you happen to become involved with the James Webb Space Telescope. So the James Webb Space Telescope is NASA's latest and greatest flagship mission. Um, It has been coming for decades, so I feel so privileged that at this point in my career, I get to play with this data. And honestly, every day we're learning something new. Um, So this is a program that we proposed four years ago at this point. And we got our first data in November. And it was one of those things where the data comes down and you you furiously try to reduce it and look at it. And it's just, it's, it's beautiful. It's simply beautiful. All of the data from this telescope is beautiful. When you say data, do you mean images? I do. I do. So... Okay, let's think about this. So you normally, when you take a picture with your camera, right. you see you see what our eyes see, right? So in, on telescopes, we have to use different filters. So you split the light into different um, parts of the, the spectrum. So some is shorter wavelength, some is longer wavelength. Webb sees in the infrared. 
Um, that's not where our eyes see. We see in the optical. And so you combine them together to make um, to make an image to try to learn learn what we're looking at, learn what galaxies look like. Some of them are red, some of them are blue. Um, so yeah, ultimately an image. Looking at an image. And some of them are red, some of them are blue, according to what our eyes see. Well, or according yes, to the light spectrum. Yes, because these galaxies you mentioned billions, billions. I get to look at galaxies billions of light years away from us. If we could see them as they are right now, we would see it as our eyes see, but that light had to travel billions of years, and so it stretches into the infrared, because our universe is expanding. Got it, Bill? <laughs> sure. I, we're, not going to, we're not going to have a, like a quick quiz halfway through this, right? Uh, right? Well... <laughs> She's a professor. <laughs> I, get, no, I just make sure follow you're up before we go deeper into this deep field of galaxies. So the difference between what the James Webb Space Telescope provides and what the Hubble provided what's the difference oh, my two favorite telescopes i feel like i'm cheating on hubble now because i love Webb so much <laughs> uh so hubble can see a pretty broad range it can see in the ultraviolet it can see through the optical where our eyes are and, and into the near infrared so the um just getting into the infrared which is actually where where we're actually we radiate that's where we radiate our bodies the heat that comes off of us is in the near infrared um <clears throat> It turns out to go to longer wavelengths into the infrared, which is where Webb is sensitive. We had to, I say we, I mean, I didn't do this, but uh, NASA had to build a telescope that would fold up. It was in a rocket that got launched on Christmas Day, uh, two Christmases ago. It was launched into space and had to unfold while traveling a million miles. So right now it's a million miles away from Earth, and that's where it's taking our observations. And that's because... You in, at these longer wavelengths, it needs to be very cold, and so it's infrared wavelengths. It's longer wavelengths than our eyes are sensitive to, but it turns out that's the light we need to be able to see the first galaxies and to see back, um, to understand what happened in the early universe. Okay, so there it is, a million miles from Earth, yep, and it's collecting light that was formed billions of years ago. Many billions. And you and your team are collecting this data, these images. Mm -hmm. And how do you learn from those images? Oh, there's too much to learn. I think you just give up and go have coffee. No, uh, <laughs> sorry, that's not the solution. Um, <laughs> that's why I'm not an astronomer. <laughs> so we have a really cool program um, that's quite unique in this first year of observations where first we went in to take our images. Who is we? Uh, my team. So this is an international team. Um, we have a group here at UMass Amherst, local. Um, within Massachusetts, there's a group at Tufts, um, there, but it's international with folks in Europe, Australia. And, and you're, a, you're an adjunct to, uh, uh, I think it's in Copenhagen, is yeah, that right? Yeah, yeah, at the Cosmic Dawn Center, um, which is really fun. That's, a, that's another story. <laughs> so we take these images, and we want to figure out the hardest thing, interestingly enough, when you get an image, is to figure out, you see all these galaxies, they have different shapes, colors, sizes, is just figuring out what's that third dimension of how far away they are, how long did that light travel to get to us, and therefore, um, how far back in time are we looking? So telescopes are essentially time machines because the universe is expanding, and so it takes, it has, uh, the speed of light has a speed limit, it can, uh, and so it takes a certain amount of time the further back in time you are, the longer that light's been traveling to get to us as, as the universe is expanding. And the light that you're seeing in, the, in and through the James Webb Space Telescope is from galaxies 
as you were saying, like 13 to 14 billion years ago, galaxies that actually at this time probably don't exist anymore? Oh, that's like a, that makes my head spin when I think about it. So yes, we're seeing, so we see some of the galaxies are that far. Some of them are closer. It's, it's a broad range, but we're really hunting for those first galaxies. Those are the trickiest ones to find. Uh, that we're seeing these galaxies as they were in the very, very early universe within um, a few hundred million years of the Big Bang. If you could see them today, if we didn't have that speed limit barrier. Um, they speed would limit being the speed of light. Yes, exactly. They would look totally different. Um, and no, But no, we can't see them today. <laughs> we get to see them. But it's pretty cool that you can effectively look back in time. I wanted to ask about that because I read an article about looking back in time. And it seemed like, uh, from what I understood here from the article, that the formation of these galaxies happened way sooner than we thought was possible. Can you talk about that? Because yeah. it says it's just throwing everything we know about the formation of the universe uh, up in the air. That is... Um I'm actually involved in that project <laughs> also. And um, yes, it absolutely has thrown everything for a loop. So related to what you can do with this first data, when this data has come and there's lots of different programs, um, one of the first things we realized was we found these really red galaxies that were massive, really big. That means they have a ton of stars in them and they exist very early in the universe. And um, we joked calling them the universe breakers. Um, do we think we broke the universe? I don't think so. I think there are solutions. Um, but they formed so quickly that models can't produce them. It's, mm. it's currently. And so we have, we have different ideas of, of moving forward. But I would say this is a very active area of research of trying to understand what happened. An astronomer and professor, Kate Whitaker, this, what is a Pandora's galaxy, and what is this mega cluster that we're reading about from NASA? So, essentially, why did we pick this field? It's a really... Um, By field, you mean deep field. Sorry, yeah, where did we point? Where did we point in the sky? Got we it. specifically looked at Pandora's cluster because when you have a cluster, it's a foreground cluster of galaxies. So we want to hunt for the most distant galaxies. But when you have a foreground cluster of really massive galaxies... Um, they act like a lens. So anything that's behind them along the line of sight, as that light is traveling towards us and it passes by the cluster, it warps space-time. And so light is bent. And so what does that mean? It means those background galaxies get, the light gets amplified. It's like a cosmic um, magnifying glass. So we can see them at higher resolution, both size-wise, they look bigger, but also they're brighter, which makes it easier because... They're very faint in the very distant universe. So we chose this cluster specifically because it's one of the largest known cosmic lenses. And so we use that to our, our advantage. This discovery that you are involved in about the formation of galaxies billions of years earlier than you thought or astronomers thought possible, does that mean that planets formed earlier that, uh, and therefore there is a greater possibility of life in various parts and points in the existence of the universe because there was so many, there is, there has been so many more billions of years in which life could have formed. So we have a slight, so we knew that galaxies formed within the first billion of year, billion years. So it's not in terms of time scale, it's not like they formed orders of magnitude earlier. It's more that they're, um, forming qu 
quicker. They're getting, they're growing quicker than we would think. Um, so it would be like if you feel like you're supposed to be taking a picture of your baby and you go and you look and, and your baby suddenly is a toddler and you're like, well, like, how the heck did that happen? Like I blinked my eyes and they got bigger than they should have been. Um, Which happened to me, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think it's going to be happening to me every day. I turn around and my kids are getting bigger. Um, I've already, I lost track of. <laughs> planets, galaxies. Oh, planets, planets. Well, so first of all, I am by no means an expert, an expert on planet formation, but we have many local experts at, um, especially at Smith and Amherst. Um, that's a really interesting question that I have not thought about before. Uh, the thing that's tricky is the early universe is a pretty hostile environment. And so I believe the idea is that it's, it's pretty hostile for planet formation in terms of like, say a planet does form. It, it might get just as easily destroyed or um, irradiated with lots of high energy um, light. So the short answer is I don't know, but I, I'm, I imagine these massive beasts aren't going to make life easy for planet formation and survival. Yeah. Um, so it, it, I, I'm just fascinated by this mega cluster. Three galaxies kind of came together, or do we, we, we see them together? I, I didn't understand what NASA was saying in its press release. Okay, I cannot wait. I'm about to get a big poster and put it on my wall of my office. So it's clusters of galaxies, so many hundreds of galaxies, um, sometimes even up to a 1,000 galaxies all clustered together um, in a localized region. And this is a merger of three different clusters of galaxies. So you have, if you look at the image, you can see the, and I encourage you to, and I encourage you to zoom in if possible. It's just a beautiful image. How, how do we get access to the image? It is, it is public, well, gosh. Um, it is, NASA had a press release, so you can see it through there. And they made this really cool image that's zoomable. So maybe we can put the link up. Is that, would that be possible? Not on radio, but we could do it at home. Somewhere, yeah. <laughs> NASA has it. NASA's the answer. NASA's the answer. Could you explain for this little mind... <laughs> You're talking about the merger of three galaxies. Clusters of galaxies. Clusters of galaxies. I, it's, I, I can't wrap my mind around what we're talking about in terms I mean, the I think scale. Of, think Big. of the, the Milky Way as a galaxy, and you're talking about clusters of Milky Ways merging with other oh. clusters, clusters yeah. of Milky so Ways. I mean, our local group actually doesn't have a ton of galaxies in it. We're, we're, we wouldn't even be considered a cluster of galaxies. We're the local group, so a group of galaxies. Cluster is a larger scale. So these are some of the densest regions in our universe. And you have three, it's very, it's atypical that you would have the merger of so many clusters, three different subclusters coming together into one. Um, to be honest, I don't actually know of another cluster that is as atypical as Pandora's cluster. Um, but just picture like a train wreck <laughs> of a whole bunch of galaxies that are merging into a system. So it doesn't mean that the individual galaxies are going to merge into some super galaxy. That's not what was going to happen. They're not going to directly necessarily. There are some collisions. There is some galactic cannibalism, if you will. Um, <laughs> galactic cannibalism. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, like survival of the fittest. The biggest <laughs> ones get to eat all the little ones. Darwin's <laughs> mind is blown right now. Yeah. We that got are, dark. Right. We're talking with, actually, we're talking to astrophysicist and astronomer uh, Kate Whitaker, a professor at, at um, the University of Massachusetts, who's part of this team that's making this amazing new disclosures thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope. I just wanted to point out we had your colleague, 
Smith College professor Kimberly Ward Duong on, and I asked her, what's the difference between an astronomer and an astrophysicist? Ooh, what was her and answer? She, her <laughs> answer was, well, everybody always wants to ask me questions, so when I'm at a cocktail party and I really don't want to answer them, that's when I'm an astrophysicist. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. So when you're on a plane and you meet an astronomer and they tell you they're an astrophysicist, that's when you should go, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that go. is absolutely the right answer. <laughs> well, we're talking to both in Kate Whittaker. Yeah. We're going to be back with Kate and more questions right after these messages. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words... Hold my hand. In other words, baby, kiss me. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240 WHMP. Hi, this is Linda DeGillis, Vice President and Trust Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services. Investing your money does not mean having to abandon your core values. Environmental and social governance investments, also called ESG investments, allow you to focus your money in businesses and industries that match your environmental and social values and avoid those which do not. Environmental and social governance investments let you put your money where your values are. ESG investments are just one example of how we create individually designed portfolio management plans for our clients. To learn more about ESG investing in our portfolio management services and for a free consultation, call us at 413-775-8335 or go to the wealth management section of our website at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, offering portfolio management, estate settlement, and trust administration services. Call 413-775-8335 or go to the wealth management section at greenfieldsavings.com. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday, Hanger Pub and Grill? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Famous for their amazing wings and beer, the Hanger Pub and Grill has multiple locations throughout Western Mass. The Hanger Wings paired with an Amherst Brewing beer is perfect before a game. After work, lunch. Check them out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our conversation with Kate Whitaker, who is a professor in the Department of Astronomy at UMass Amherst and is an integral part of the team that is studying the images and information from the James Webb Space Telescope. I'd love to know, how does someone become involved in something this important, this gargantuan, this amazing? How did you get involved? I am so lucky to have the best network of colleagues. Um, so a lot of our team are actually um, other professors around worldwide, um, but folks that I met in graduate school. And so um, it, it kind of feels like family where you, you don't get to choose your family, but you can choose to continue a relationship. So I see, I see my colleagues like my family, and I choose to continue um, this relationship. And they're just 
smart, awesome, talented folks. So you, so many of the people involved in the James Webb Space Telescope exploration here from here on Earth were together in graduate school. Where? Um, certainly on our team. So that's not all teams. I, I can't. Sure. I can't promise to encompass all graduate programs. Uh, I went to graduate school at Yale, um, and so this is a network of. Uh, fellow graduate students at the time, but also folks that were more senior than me um, at that time. Who were studying astronomy, astrophysics, what? We are in the Department of Astronomy at Yale, just like here here at UMass. And what year was that you were in grad school? <laughs> Can I, should I admit that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You have the right to remain. Uh, I was at Yale from, what, oh my goodness, this is a hard question. Let the light emanating from her <laughs> disclose her age, Bill. <laughs> I got my PhD in 2012. And you've been in, so you've been involved with space exploration since you've been in graduate school. Um, I have been exploring space from ground. I have a slight fear of heights and flying. <laughs> so just to be clear, there. <laughs> yeah, and, and as you pointed out, the James Webb Space Telescope oh, is a million miles. Yes, it away. is a million miles away. We can't. Uh, I, I'm just so grateful it got there and it unfolded and it is taking all this amazing data. But yes, I work with an amazing group of people I've known for a long time. So, Professor Kate Whittaker, so by combining Webb's, this powerful infrared, uh, these instruments and this broad mosaic view that we're talking about, what do you, it's being described as a new frontier. What makes it a new frontier and what do you hope to learn in the future from it? So I talked about this earlier where if you want to hunt for the first galaxies, they're invisible to, to light that our eyes can see, light even that Hubble um, the Hubble Space Telescope, because you need to go to longer wavelengths. They um, are so distant that light has been traveling for so long that they drop out of view. They're, they are, they are, if they are um, a real first galaxy, they are invisible. We cannot see them with, with Hubble. And so how are, how are you going to do this? You're going to build something like Webb. And that was one of the core mission goals. Um, there are several different pillars in terms of also understanding the formation of planets, um, exoplanets, so planets outside of our solar system. Uh, but the first galaxies was one of the main reasons why this entire idea, the conception of Webb came about, um, because we knew we needed to look to longer wavelengths. I have a remedial question. I apologize in advance. When you say you're looking into deep space and billions of years ago, are you looking towards a core, a place where there was the Big Bang, or is that just a Ooh, total misconception? <laughs> so something that, in terms of what's happened to the universe, so we have the Big Bang uh, in the beginning, there was a period of inflation, and then since then, the universe is expanding. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you and I are going to, like. well, maybe I am going to get slowly bigger over time, but <laughs> that's not what it means. <laughs> Space itself is expanding. So the distance between you and I, yeah. uh, well, actually, Mm, that's not a good... The distance between uh, the Milky Way and Andromeda... Well, that's also not a good example. <laughs> the distance between the, our local group of galaxies and, say, the Coma Cluster. It's the, uh, the big, great big cluster of galaxies that's not very far away from us. The space between us expands over time. And so the fate of our, our universe is sort of governed by what, what we were made up with at the beginning. And... Um, if it makes sense, the distance between all things that aren't, well, I said, um, so we're gravitationally collapsed. So that's why I was saying, you know, um, Milky Way and Andromeda are on a crash course towards each other. So they're not going to, you know, separate. They, they have separated out from the, the cosmic expansion at, at larger scales, if that makes sense. Um, so it was not a very good example. But um, 
ultimately it's that that is that is driving why everything is traveling away from each other as time goes on and as and it's actually pretty amazing because of that that we can look back in time and piece together what happened in our universe from the very beginning and is there a place that's what i'm asking uh, i mean when you point the telescope at it is is there so a we we do point at places but there is no center no okay we're not special. Nobody's special. There's no center. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. I'm feeling so small right I know, now. I know. I know. It gets to galactic cannibalism. There is no, nobody's special. I'm like a Debbie Downer. <laughs> I, I started paying attention to the cannibalism. I got really excited. That was really different. <laughs> it's true. So, uh, so you and your team, what's your next step? So I actually, um, I was talking about this before. The first step in our program was getting this imaging. The second step is very exciting. What we need to now do and what we're, we're working on very actively is finding all the coolest galaxies in there. So some of the first galaxies, but also galaxies that existed maybe later in time at the peak epoch of star formation, but have really cool astrophysics going on in them. So first we find them, and then we get to go back in July. And so we have imaging so far, some of the deepest imaging that's ever been taken with Webb in this first year of observations. And we're going to go back and take a spectrum of the coolest, most interesting looking galaxies. Uh, and our hope is that we're going to learn a wide range. So not just about how the first galaxies formed, but how galaxies evolved to the present day. So over 13.8 billion years, I want to I wanna know it all. I don't just want to know the first galaxies. Well, that is cool. <laughs> all right. This, is gonna, this won't be the dumbest question I asked today, but it's going to be close to it. Okay, great. So you're in a team. Does it happen that someone says, hey, I think this could be explained by... And then somebody else says, good idea, bad idea. How, do, how does this knowledge evolve? Absolutely. And we have a lot of bad ideas and bad interpretations. But honestly, with this new data, it just feels like new frontiers in the sense that you have to be open to things that I'm not looking for the simple and obvious solution that we were we expected. You want to look for the things, for example, those universe universe breakers. I have bunny ears. You can't see me. Um, <laughs> again, do I think we broke the universe? No. Are we learning something that we didn't understand before? Yes, there is something to be learned here. And so those are the things to me that are the most exciting um, because, well, it, it keeps me in a job, so that's good. Um, jobs, <laughs> jobs are good. <laughs> but also, it's really fun and exciting, and, and it's always changing. So And it sparks new ideas and new things to look at. So I think that's one of the best questions you asked today, in fact. Ooh, how about that? Bill, have you ever applied for a job where they, the job is going to be to understand the universe? I am so, my mind is so blown by trying to grasp any of these concepts, frankly, because the numbers are so, in. I mean, we're getting close to infinity in terms of numbers of galaxies, numbers of uh, uh, stars and planets. I mean, it's it's hard to really wrap your mind around it's any of this. Big universe out there. That's one nice <laughs> way to put it. Thank you. It's a big universe, Bill. It's to try there's, not... a, there's a phrase we use: the the unknown unknowns. That's what we're looking for. Wow, mm. I love I that know. phrase. That tells a lot. I just I just wish Kate. Whitaker, you are more enthusiastic about what you do. It's just... Oh, I've been told that before. It's a character flaw. I'm working on it. It's I'm working nothing on it. like a flaw. It's fantastic. I, I, obviously, you're a fantastic educator. I feel a tiny bit more informed, not because you didn't give me the information, but as Bill said, I can't retain it very well. 
You guys <laughs> should stay tuned, though, because there's so much. This is just the first, not even the first year of observations. We have so much more. I, you just tune in. Whenever you see a NASA highlight, there's so much cool stuff coming out. And are you going to get closer to the Big Bang? Again, me physically, no. <laughs> but now that was the stupidest question I am going to ask. I, I want to nominate that for dumbest question today. Okay. I think that a lot has come out, and at this point, we're trying to see as a community what sticks and what doesn't. So the answer is absolutely yes. But I think we're at the part where you're kind of like trying to weed through the like, is this real? Is this not real? Um, and we're not quite, we're not there yet. But um, I, I have. I have faith that we will get there. Well, I have faith that with people like you working on it, that we are going to get there. And uh, can't tell you how interesting and fun it's been to talk to you, Kate Whitaker. Thank and you so much good, for having me here. Oh no, it's our pleasure, and uh, we hope you come back. <laughs> we do, and and uh, we hope you get closer to the answer of the unknown. Bill, remember that. We're not too close. The unknown not too close. about the unknown. <laughs> we'll be right back. We're going to be talking with Tori Verdi. The head coach of the Minute Women, the fantastically successful UMass women's basketball team, right after this. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A South Hadley man will be charged for the deaths of two people that were struck and killed in East Hampton last August. 64 year old Stuart Larkin of South Hadley hit 81 year old Edward Hanlon Jr. and 60 year old Alona Murray as they were attempting to cross the street on Route 10 near the Burger King in East Hampton. An investigation into the accident concluded Larkin should have seen the two people in time to avoid hitting them. Larkin will be charged with two counts of negligent motor vehicle homicide and one count of speeding. He's expected to be arraigned on April 3rd. Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia says he takes full responsibility for the problems within the city's police department, despite it being a decades-long problem. At Monday night's meeting of the city's Public Safety Commission, auditors presented their findings and offered solutions to many problems plaguing the city's police, namely the need for more training, better record-keeping, and more financial oversight. And although I've been in office for one year and six months tackling these issues that built up for decades, I want folks to know that I take full responsibility as the commander-in-chief of the city and will do anything it takes within my legal power to keep making the hard decisions on behalf of the public so that we put our city on a better course. 66% of officers surveyed indicated they felt they were under-trained for their current role. Cooley Dickinson Hospital is the recipient of a $250,000 donation from Smith College. The funds will be used to expand and renovate the emergency department. Renovations of the Cooley Dickinson Emergency Room are expected to begin this spring. Sunshine this morning, clouds this afternoon, and breezy all day. Perhaps a wind gust or two over 30 miles per hour, a high of 42 to 46. Variable clouds and breezy tonight, overnight low 26 to 32. Mostly cloudy, flurry or a sprinkle on Thursday with a high of 42 to 46. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian. Ryan Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control. 
uh, bite white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build the solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back. It is International Women's Day, and we really want to celebrate our own Minute Women, the enormously successful basketball team uh, from the univer- our University of Massachusetts. And we're so lucky to have with us a very busy man right now, uh, Coach uh, Tori Verdi, who is the head coach of... Uh, this successful group of women who have uh, had quite a year. Coach, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Well, boy, uh, you took over this program in 2016, I think your, your first year. Well, I, I won't mention what the, what, what the record was the first year, but I will mention what keeps happening year after year and the incredible successes that you and your players have had. Can you tell us a little bit about how you built this program? Well, you know, when I took over the program, uh, you never know what you're walking into until you actually get on campus. And so I was the head coach at Eastern Michigan, you know, and uh, had uh, a lot of success there and, and we're winning, you know, 20 plus uh, games a year. And, and so when, when the, you know, UMass job opened up and, um, you know, I'm from Connecticut originally, but, uh, you know, so I knew a little about, a little bit about the history on the men's side. Um, you know, and uh, when UMass called me, I came on campus and, you know, saw the resources that they had. I'm like, you know, it's kind of a sleeping giant. But you really don't know, you know, what's going on until you get, you know, your your feet on the ground and um, start diving in. And, you know, there was no tradition. There was no history here um, within the program. And so um, known as a recruiter, you know, I, I thought that I could go out and, and you know, recruit, you know, players and right away. Um, but But I will, you know, say that, uh, it wasn't so easy, you know, and, uh, but little by little, you know, we went out and, you know, knocked on doors and, you know, slowly but surely start to build a program. And, um, you know, our goal and, and all that was one, you know, we wanted to build a really good culture, you know, and, and I think that we were able to go out and recruit really good, uh, character kids and competitive kids and, 
we wanted to have successful uh, success, um, you know, on the court, but also in the classroom. And, you know, um, but also want to represent the University of Massachusetts and be proud of that, you know. And, and so um, we built that. And year after year, you know, if you look at the trajectory of the program, you know, we, we continue to win. And uh, we did something that, you know, I was told that, um, you know, probably couldn't happen here at UMass, and that was to, you know, win championships, you know, but I wasn't going to be denied. And, you know, I'm ultra competitive. And, you know, I knew that, you know, with the support of the administration and, you know, a great coaching staff, anything was possible. And so, you know, we were able to, you know, uh, to do that. Not only did we win a conference tournament championship last year, uh, the first, uh, but this year we also won the regular season championship, first time in the history of the program. And I just want to circle back, Coach, and, and just for folks who do, don't know that I didn't know it until I actually researched it. Over the last 20 years, the NCAA reports that the largest increase in graduation rates across college athletics is women's basketball, growing 14% to 94% graduation rate, um, The general generally higher than student graduation rates at 84%. And here at UMass, four-year degrees, people are graduating in four years at a rate of 67%, 94% for your program. What do you do to make that kind of success in the classroom off the court? Well, I mean, I think that one, you know, the education piece is, you know, the first thing that is communicated to the student athletes that we're recruiting. They understand, you know, um, what's important here. Um, and, you know, they don't play, um, you know, if they're not serious about their academics and if they are, you know, struggling academically, you know, they're going to, you know, miss practice. So they understand the expectations are high academically here first. And it's taken very seriously. You know, the basketball piece, you know, comes secondary. And so, you know, we, we, we've been able to, you know, obviously, you know, put a ton of safety nets in place for our student athletes. And, you know, with the support of academic services, I think that we've done an unbelievable job, you know, preparing our players uh, to be successful in the classroom and beyond. Coach, this is Bill Newman. I have a question circling back to what you were saying about recruiting. How do you t- go from a program that is not nationally known to being able to recruit fabulous athletes who are also terrifically successful students and have them come to UMass, which was a basketball unknown, as opposed to going to a more well-known and well-established program? How did you do that? Well, you know, it takes a lot of work. Um you know, and, and by no means did I do this by myself. You know, it, it, it takes everyone and, uh, you know, but you, you got to differentiate how you do things, how you work. You got to work harder than all your opponents out there and you got to do things differently. And so, you know, it was just about going and, you know, finding, you know, uh, the right players, you know, players that were competitive players that, you know, were wanted to be committed, you know, winners, you know, and then what we did is, you know, with every recruiting class, we're just like, they got to be better than the previous, you know, recruiting class. And, you know, and, and then that started to happen. And then you got to get lucky, you know, and, and we did. We, we, we got a couple cornerstones. And, you know, with Destiny Philoxy, who came in from Queens, you know, traditional four-year, you know, student um, athlete. And, and then we got really lucky with Sam Brain, who was a transfer, um, you know, from Penn State. And uh, the two of those guys have been, you know, instrumental to, you know, the turnaround in our program. And so, um, you know, when you look at all the pieces, they slowly but surely, you know, started to fit each and every single year, 
you know, we were able to retain, you know, those players and, and continue to build them up and, and, and really, you know, um, improve their games. And then, you know, and then with all the right pieces in place, um, you know, we, we started to, to win. And uh, it, it, w- when you take over a program, look, it, it's not easy. You know, I mean, the first, you know, I think, you know, the first pillar is like you, you lose, you know, you lose by a large margin and then, you know, then you try to shorten that margin and you lose close and then you win close and then you win large. And, and, and so there's like a four prong approach to all that. And, you know, I think we've covered all four, to be honest with you, because my first year, you know, nobody, nobody knows this, but when we won the championship and I had to speak, you know, to my colleagues, you know, down in Florida in the A-10, and, and I told that, them. That's the Atlantic nobody, 10 championship you're talking about, the Atlantic 10 conference. Yeah, that, that is correct. And, you know, n- nobody remembers that in my first year we lost our last 12 games. And, and, and we, you know, didn't win a game for a month and a half. Like, you know, and but they do remember, you know, all the successes that you have. And so, you know, um, I think we've done a really good job with the maturation process with our players and, and truly grown them. And, uh, and we're able to get the right players in here. And, you know, and then things took off. And, you know, before in the recruiting process, people, you know, they, they weren't, you know, they weren't, weren't returning phone calls. You know, they, they scoffed at us. They laughed at us. And, you know, they were like, we're not going to send our kids here you know, to UMass, you know, there's no tradition, there's no history, but then slowly but surely as you start to win, that changes. Well, they're not laughing. They're not laughing now, Coach uh, Tori Verdi. So this year, an incredible season. I think you you went into the Atlantic 10 championships having won the regular season, the tournament, which uh, would lead to an automatic berth in the in the big dance, as they say, the women's uh, 64 team, well, 68, including the play-in teams, 64-team tournament. And, oh, my goodness, Sidney Taylor, this heroic uh, uh, three-point game-tying buzzer beater that forced everybody to be smiling. And then um, what happened then, Coach? Well, we lost in overtime, you know, and uh, we didn't play our best basketball that game. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate Sydney, you know, had a, you know, a, a major injury. She has a fracture to her eye socket, you know, from, from um, one of the game from the George Washington game, which was the game where we won the regular, um, you know, season championship, but then was struggling with that, but, uh, you know, was a warrior and, and continued to play, but we didn't play our best game. And, you know, uh, the better team on that day, you know, which was St. Louis, you know, won, won the eight ten tournament championship. And, you know, I've always said this, it's really hard to win championships. And, you know, this was our third championship game in the last three years, you know, and we won, you know, just one time. That's how hard it is. You have one off game and it's over. You know, luckily for us, you know, we're still going to play. We're, we're going to play in postseason, most likely the WNIT, um, you know, with uh, where we sit right now as an at-large uh, bid team. Um, but uh, still, you know, this is only, I believe, the fifth time in, in the history of the program where we're playing for a postseason, um, you know, playoff run. Coach, this is Dan. I have a bit of an unfair question for you, but I'll ask it. How much of that loss that just happened that you were referring to, was it your team or was it the opposite team? How much of credit can you give St. them? St. Louis. St. Louis. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's, a, it's uh, I would say a little bit of both, I, you know. We, we 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 you know we're committed defensively for whatever reason, um, and and the one thing about our team which is 
you know, um, a double-edged sword is that, you know, we have six players who can all score the ball, and, and that's great to have. But at the same point in time, when things aren't going your way, you know, they kind of, you know, get away from, you know, what we do as a team, and, and we start playing what I call hero ball, which means everyone wants to figure out how to, you know, win the game on their own. And it doesn't work out that way, you know. And so we, we, we kind of got away from, you know, what we do as a team. But I, I got to give St. Louis credit. I thought they were, what they did defensively, they were disruptive. Uh, they put a ton of pressure on our guards. Um, and our guards weren't, you know, comfortable. But at the same point in time, you know, our post struggled uh, around the rim as well. So you got to give them credit. But, but again, we didn't play our best basketball. Well, we are going to be... Uh, taking a break, we are talking. I'm so pleased to be talking to you, uh, Coach Verdi, about the Minute Women and their successes. When we come back, I do want to talk about the NIT, the National Invitational Tournament, and the big dance. It's March Madness, the NCAA tournament. But I also want to talk to you about the, it's International Women's Day. I want to talk about the prevalence of men coaching women uh, in, in intercollegiate athletics. We'll be right back with Coach Verdi right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at every source to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Paddington goes next door to borrow a cup of sugar from his neighbor, Mr. Curry. Mr. Curry is in a panic. He's expecting a visit from his great aunt Matilda. So Paddington volunteers to help Mr. Curry with his to-do list before Aunt Matilda's imminent arrival. Repairing the pipes in the bathroom, vacuuming the floor, baking a cake. But in typical Paddington fashion, nothing goes according to plan. The pipes burst and the bathroom floods. The vacuum cleaner misbehaves. And what the heck went wrong with that cake recipe, Paddington? The UMass Fine Arts Center presents Paddington Gets in a Jam, a Sunday matinee, March 12th at 3 p.m. For tickets, go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Will the well-meaning Paddington be able to make everything right before Aunt Matilda arrives? Be there for Paddington Gets in a Jam, Sunday, March 12th at 3 at UMass Amherst. Looking for the perfect place to watch the game? Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Make the Hangar Pub and Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer making experience, there's an Amherst Brewing beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights in Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit hangerpub.com for more of what we have cooking and brewing today. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. 
When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5-1400 WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we're here with Tori Verdi, coach, head coach of the Tremendously successful uh, UMass Minute Women basketball team who uh, for the last few years have just uh, done great service to us. It is March Madness. We have two postseason tournaments that everybody looks to, both the National Invitational Tournament, what we call the NIT, and the Big Dance, the NCAA tournament, which has 68 total invitees, 64 of which We'll be placed in brackets and play for the national championship for Division One, of which UMass is a member. So, Coach, Bill Newman was just asking you as we were during break, what are our chances of getting in the NCAAs? I mean, fingers crossed. I mean, I hope, you know, you never know. Um, you know, but by my calculations, I think that, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a bubble team. Um, you know, and, and I'm not sure if we get in, uh, to be quite honest. Uh, there were a couple games that happened last night that kind of, um, you know, we lose uh, two seeds, um, you know, with uh, Portland um, winning and beating Gonzaga, um, and then also South Florida, who uh, just lost in their tournament. So uh, two more teams would be in that, you know, and I think that, uh, by my calculations, I think that we're going to be headed to the uh, NIT. But fingers crossed, you never know what happens. Fingers crossed, and we, we hope we get to the big dance. But the NIT is no small thing either, is it? No. I mean, when you look at it, you know, we, we've only been to the postseason five times uh, in the history of the program. And, uh, you know, two of them, you know, uh, with what we did here in the last uh, two years, you know, so this will be the third time, you know, um, in, in, in the last three years. So we've done some great things here, you know. So we haven't, you know, played in the postseason a whole lot. So for us to participate you know in any postseason tournament um is a great thing yes we want to you know participate in the nc two-way uh tournament you know we're 26 and 6 and it's hard to swallow that knowing that you know that's not good enough for the nc two-way tournament right so speaking of that kind of success in the post tournament first season tournament we you have these wonderful athletes here and They'll, whatever tournament, whether it's GNIT or the NCAA, they're going to remember this for the rest of their lives. And basketball is going to be so important in helping them find their dreams. You have a lot of responsibility as a coach. You're also an educator. And you, you mentioned earlier that you thought what happens in the classroom should be considered more important than what happens on a basketball court. But I want to hear that educator part of Coach Tori Verdi talking about women being able finally to pursue their dreams to break that glass ceiling with a ball in their hand. Well, sure. You know, I mean, we're not only, you know, preparing them, you know, for the basketball court, but we're preparing them for life. And it's my job as their coach to, you know, instill that work ethic confidence as well. 
Um, I think those two things, um, you know, are huge factors in how they, you know, pursue what's after basketball because the ball is going to stop bouncing at some point in time. So um, once it does, you know, they need to, you know, be ready to tackle, you know, uh, tackle the real life, the real world. As, as as we know. And so we do everything we can with our academic services to prepare our student athletes to, you know, uh, creating that resume and, and, and doing, you know, um, uh, mock interviews and, and so forth so that, you know, when it does come time, they got to walk into that office and interview for a job. They're prepared for that. But it's my job as, you know, their coach to instill that confidence in them, you know, so that they could go and pursue, you know, um, that job that they want. And, um, you know, I, I think there's something to be said about student athletes, especially, you know, our women in our program, you know, people in, in, in companies want to hire student athletes. And it's because, you know, of everything that they've done, you know, during their time at, you know, the university, think about all the hard work, think about how they have to balance the life of, you know, their, you know, a- academics and athletics. Meanwhile, going into the community, you know, doing community, community involvement. So, the hours and the demands on a student athlete are tremendously great. But not only that, they have to work together as a team, and they know that you know um, working together as a team is so valuable and important, and they understand that. Um, and then also, you know, just leadership. And so, um, all those you know core values are so important for them to be successful in the real world. Coach, I have a quick question for you. Has Maura Healy been an inspiration for your women athletes? Former basketball oh, player, college player, professional player, basketball player. Yeah, basketball player. Um, you know, she she came and visited us. Uh, you know, uh, this past summer, and uh, you know, talked uh, to our players about you know excelling both in the classroom and on the court, and then in society in society as well. Um, but when you look at her and you know, um, what she did, you know, throughout her collegiate career at, at Harvard and, you know, what she's doing now um, as governor um, is truly special. Well, what you've done is really, truly special. I think that you've changed lives over these past seven years. You've been here, in, here at UMass and before that at Eastern Michigan. I know in Ypsilanti you made a big difference too. And I really want to thank you for spending time with us today. Um, we all uh, are looking for gen- gender equity. And I think what's going on with our Minute Women uh, helps close that gap. Um, so, Coach, thank you so much. Good luck in the postseason. I, I really hope you see the NCAA. If not, we'll see you in the NIT. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. That's Talk to Talk. What we urge people to do is not just talk to talk, but also walk the walk. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. 